Good morning, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host today, Shantae Charles. I hope that you have been having a great and wonderful day. I tell you, I had a wonderful, wonderful, restful, peaceful weekend. Um, I didn't go anywhere. And that was the best part. <laughs> I did not go anywhere. Um, I always say create a life that you don't have to vacation from. And I would say right now I have definitely done that. I am very thankful and very content. Um, not content to the, to the point of complacency, but I am content um, in where I am in terms of just being able to rest and being able to relax. And I was able to um, do that this weekend. So I hope that if you're listening today and if you're joining us for our Monday Motivation, that you've gotten a chance to do that. Now, I will say as a reminder, tomorrow, 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 we are going to be on our Facebook page, Black Table Talk. There are announcements here right on this page here on IG. All you have to do is look at that announcement and you can see what our icon looks like because there are a couple of pages out there that say Black Table Talk, but ours is the one that has the green with the African uh, kente cloth pattern in the background that says Black Table Talk. So you do want to meet us. You do not want to miss this conversation. It is um, a, I would say, once in a lifetime conversation that's going to be going down with Dr. Diane M. Stewart, and we're going to be talking Black women, Black love. If you've been over following us on Tuesdays on Black Table Talk, you saw us read through her entire book. So she's going to come on and she's going to talk to us about that work. She's going to talk to us about um, her inspiration behind it. And we're just going to have a really, really good conversation. So I encourage you to get into that conversation, especially if you are a Black woman. I also want to say I've had a lot of, um, I don't know if anyone else is experiencing this. Let me know in the comments or put some hearts on the screen. If you're experiencing an uptick of white people that you don't know coming onto your page or coming in your spaces and being confrontational with you or being contrary with you. So I don't know. Obviously, they've chosen Black History Month to be a little more animated and aggressive, um, but I'm not having it. I'm doing immediate blocks. I'm not arguing with racists. Like, I'm not here for that. I'm here to teach people who want to be taught. I'm here to encourage, you know, my people, love on my people, uplift and empower my people and keep it moving. So um, the majority of the content that I put out is really um, targeted towards people who want to learn. <laughs> it's like, if you don't want to learn, this is not the space for you. Point blank, period. Um, so I don't argue with racists. I don't do the back and forth. Yes. My ministry, the block ministry is strong when it comes to my personal space in my pages. Most of us get enough microaggressions on a day-to-day -day basis outside of social media that, social media. We don't need more added to it. Um, I've also had people coming into my space 
um, suggesting that I change the name, right? So I'm finding a lot of people because they're um, new to the page, especially on Facebook. They're kind of finding themselves over in the space. And I'm like, look at the name of this page. The name of this page gives you a clue. <laughs> I'm just saying, it gives you a clue as to what this page is about and who it's for. And somebody was like, oh, this is a wonderful page. You really should call it People Table Talk. I'm like, no, that's what we have daring dialogues for. <laughs> I know what I'm doing, but thank you for the suggestion. Uh, so yeah, Daring Dialogues is for everyone. Black Table Talk was specifically designed to meet the needs of Black people. So no, we're not changing it. We're, we're just not. We're not doing that. And the other thing that I'm finding is because um, there is this push, right, against trying to take Black history out of schools and even out of universities at this point, now people are trying to come onto the internet and trying to um, suppress and censor people on the internet. I'm like, okay, you, you first of all, you already went too far at the beginning, but now you're trying to come onto and into black spaces that are designed for black people to say, I don't think this space should exist or i think this space is racist block <laughs> i'm just telling you i'm not i'm not arguing 2023 is not the year to be arguing and going back and forth with people if you're in your 30s if you're in your 40s and beyond most of us in that age range there we're not doing the going back and forth with people that takes up too much mental energy. So I want to encourage you today that, you know, if you are finding these things happening, don't spend your time, don't spend your energy going back and forth with people who have no intentions of learning. They're simply there to try to start an argument with you on your page or to distract you from the very necessary work that you are doing. Now that I've gotten that out of the way, let's talk about historically black American icons who attended HBCUs. Let's see who we can get into today. And then we're also going to go back to, isn't her grace amazing? So let's see, who did we not cover in here? Did we cover them? I don't think we did. I think we should. Yeah. Did we cover Bayard Rustin? I don't think we did. You all let me know in the comments. I think we might have skipped him. Bayard Rustin. Do you all remember us covering him? I know we did not cover her.
yeah and then we're going to go back and talk we're going to go back and talk about homecoming in a moment you don't remember him okay so let's make sure we cover we covered Meg the Stallion on our last session all right let's do Bayard Rustin and we'll start there and then we'll look at Monet Davis we've covered her I think Women's History Month, but this is actually going to give us a little bit more about her. So let's look at Bayard Rustin, Monet Davis, and then we'll talk about homecoming. This is Bayard Rustin. If you don't know who he is, you really should know who he is. He was the major architect behind a lot of the civil rights planning, organization, strategy, and movement. Without Bayard Rustin, there is no March on Washington. He was sort of like Martin Luther King's right-hand man. And I like Bayard Rustin in the fact that he did not lead his life with his sexuality, just like James Baldwin. James Baldwin did not lead his life by his sexuality. I think one of the, um, one of the issues that we're seeing right now or sort of some of the backlash that the LGBTQIA community often gets is the fact that people feel like everything they do is centered around their sexuality or their sexual orientation. Like you should let me do X, Y, and Z because I'm this, right? But Bayard Rustin, super important to the civil rights movement. Nobody can take that away from him. But he also recognized that his blackness and what he was enduring in this country as a black man was the topic or was the central focus at the time that needed to be dealt with. Does that make sense? I hope I'm making sense, right? So were there rights that he wanted to fight for as a, as a man who had same-sex attraction, there was. He and King often talked about those other issues. But his decision was, we need to focus on this because if we don't have this straight, all these other issues that we're talking about underneath this are not going to be handled and not going to be dealt with. And I think he was right. In the sense that if you look at the um, if you look at the 14th Amendment and you look at the Civil Rights Act and the things that were allowed to be passed with the Civil Rights Act, that opened up the way for other marginalized groups to receive rights. And people will often say, you know, you don't have um Latino rights without civil rights. You don't have all of these other rights that people are attaining today without that base and without that foundation. And so I think he understood that um, in a lot of ways more than people understand it right now. So let's talk Bayard Rustin. He was a civil rights activist. He attended Wilberforce University and Cheney State Teachers College. He lived from 1912 all the way through to 1987. 
In a country founded on civil disobedience, there is perhaps no greater political strategist than Bayard Rustin. He joined forces with A. Philip Randolph and A. J. Must to propose the first March on Washington back in 1941. 22 years later, he was called upon again to serve on the leadership team of the now historic 1963 March on Washington. He worked to protect the property of more than 100,000 Japanese Americans who had been imprisoned in internment camps. And he coordinated a protest of de facto segregation in the New York City public school system that saw 400,000 New Yorkers take to the streets. This man was bad, okay? It was, at the time, the largest civil rights demonstration in American history. Rustin was born and raised in Westchester, Pennsylvania, a town that, at the height of the abolitionist movement, boasted of several underground railroad stations. His grandparents had one of the largest homes in the black part of town and hosted leaders of the black community whenever they visited. James Weldon Johnson, W.E.B. Dubois, and Mary McLeod Bethune were among their house guests. These towering figures left an indelible impression on the young Rustin. In all estimates, Rustin was a singularly gifted student. As a freshman, he won his high school's coveted oratory award and the first black student to do so in 40 years. By senior year, he won first place in a school-wide essay contest, earned letters in track and football, wrote poetry for the school magazine, and secured leading roles in many of the school's dramatic productions. At his graduation ceremony, he scored highest among his peers in honor points. But when he graduated, no college offered him a scholarship. As a devoted member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, his grandmother petitioned the church's leader, Dr. R. R. Wright, on Rustin's behalf. Dr. Wright, recently appointed as president of Wilberforce University, granted Rustin an audience. Upon hearing Rustin sing, Wright offered him a music scholarship. With three shirts, one pair of pants, and $100, Rustin set off for college. As part of his scholarship, Rustin sang in both the chorus and the university's more exclusive octet. As a member of the octet, he traveled throughout the country holding concerts to raise money for the university. While these trips were exciting, he was conflicted about campus life. During his time at Wilberforce, male students were forced to participate in the Reserve Officer Training Corps, or ROTC which meant that the first two years of coursework involved mandatory military training. Rustin was a pacifist and objected to the training. Frustrated, he dropped out sophomore year and enrolled at Cheney State Teachers College. There, Rustin found an intellectual model in Dr. Leslie Hill, an esteemed educator, writer, and public servant who helped foster Rustin's political consciousness. When close to half a million college students held an anti-war strike in 1936, Hill hosted a conference to further the discourse, inviting many of the protesters to campus. The event turned out to be seminal for Rustin as he began forming his own views on war, peace, and economic justice. After Cheney, he moved to New York City where he accepted a position as the Race Relations Secretary for the Fellowship of Reconciliation, a pacifist organization inspired by Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolence. For years, he traveled the country protesting discrimination in all facets until the Selective Service Act was passed. This act required men between the ages of 21 and 36 to register with their local draft boards. 
Rustin refused, citing his pacifist views, and was sentenced to two years in prison. Upon release, Rustin picked up where he left off. He traveled to India and learned the techniques of nonviolent civil resistance directly from the leaders of the Gandhian movement. When he returned to the U.S., he was convinced that nonviolent civil resistance could drastically improve the condition of Black Americans, and he persuaded Martin to abandon all armed protection, including King's personal handgun, impressing upon him the importance of committing wholly to nonviolence. Over the years, Rustin became one of King's most valued advisors, providing counsel on the Montgomery bus boycott, the creation of the Southern Leadership Christian Conference, and the execution of the 1963 March on Washington. As I said, without Bayard Rustin, there is no Martin that we know today, that we see today. Not many people know about Rustin's contributions. He was an openly gay black man during a period of American history when homophobia was rampant, but his contributions helped move the country closer to its professed ideals. In 2013, he was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama. He stated, the only way to reduce ugliness in the world is to reduce it in yourself. That's a profound statement. How many people are working on reducing the ugliness in themselves? All right. Let's talk about the tradition of homecoming. Words that spring to mind when alumni return. Reverence, pride, peace. Homecoming for alumni in particular is a bit of respite in this world of madness. It shores us up and fuels our tanks as we prepare to disperse yet again to the far corners of the nation. For too brief a weekend, we go home to re-inhabit the lives we lived while we were students. We retell old stories. We flesh out stale jokes. We circle back to debates that started years ago. We remember who we once were. These are no doubt the ruminations of an old man, but the experience is not all that different as a student. Perhaps the best part of homecoming is simply being in the number, pressing your way through that mass of people who were and are just like you. The smell of catfish sizzling in grease, the pungent scent <clears throat> of weed. I don't know if that is a homecoming memory that I would want. <laughs> Solo cups raised in shoulder high, shoulder high to keep your drink inside. Music thumping so loudly, the canopy of tents trembling. I remember my first homecoming. I witnessed under one of these tents, a group of old men greeting each other with hugs so tightly their muscles bulged. A woman stumbled upon a friend she had not seen in years and playfully shoved her. The friend turned and they fell into each other crying. At homecoming, there's love above the hot pavement, pavement and your chest is thick with it. <clears throat> Drunk off of Everclear, I accidentally stepped on a man's sneakers, the writer says. All he said was, don't worry, fam. We home, ain't we? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I went to a PWI, so our homecomings is not like a HBCU at all, at all. I don't go to homecoming for my school. 
I don't. Just being honest, I don't. And even when I was still living in the town that has the college that I graduated from, we had uh, Florida A&M University there and then my college, Florida State University. I never went to my homecoming, but I would always, <laughs> always try to make my, my, make my way at least to the Saturday of a Florida A&M University homecoming. So whether it was just walking out and hanging on the set, which is kind of like the open courtyard area where everybody's just kind of milling about or sitting or, or eating some food or chatting or talking, I would make it to that or the other side of the campus where the game was going on and across the street, you know, like they said, there would be vendors and again, people just hanging out, talking, buying stuff, having a good time, catching up with friends. Although I didn't know half of the people. Because <laughs> I went to Florida A&M University for one semester for um, arts and some architecture classes. But a lot of my a lot of my collegiate friends went to Florida State. Some went to FAMU, but most of them were at Florida State. But it didn't matter. It really didn't. That's the beauty of homecoming. I mean, if you were black, you were just out there. They had something called, and I don't know if other universities do this, they had something called Be Out Day, where literally the whole point of the day was simply to be outside. As they say, we outside. To be outside in your best clothing, with your best hairdo, just enjoying being amongst Black people. Anytime I went, there was never a problem. I never um, had an incident where somebody was fighting or, you know, a shooting or something broke out. Like, none of that ever happened. So, one of the things that I saw was kind of like the beauty of homecoming is, of course, like they said, the reunion of people but also just being in the midst of your people, just enjoying each other, um, purchasing things from people that were black owned products, whether it was your shirt, right? From a, a vendor or whether it was food, you know, soul food from um, vendors that were right outside of the stadium. So just things like that is a part of that HBCU culture. Listen, my PWI didn't do none of that. <laughs> They're like, we're having a game. And most of the things were not outside. It's just different. If you've never been to an HBCU homecoming, try to go one year. If you have a HBCU in your town that you live in, check out when their homecoming events are and try to go. Try to go to a homecoming game. The game for that um that Saturday. Usually it's like a Friday through a Sunday. And see if there's any difference. That's my challenge for today. All right, we're moving on to Monet Davis. I'm not sure if many of you know her. We did cover her last year during Women's History Month. She is an athlete at Hampton University. She was born in 2001. At 13 years old, Monet Davis became the first Black girl to play in the Little League World Series. When she got there, she allowed she, only two hits. She struck out eight batters. She walked none. 
and became the first girl in the series history to throw a shutout. Around this time, a reporter asked Davis about her goals and dreams. Davis shared that she liked to play basketball at the University of Connecticut and then joined the WNBA. Years later, she committed to Hampton, a school that felt like home. Davis first captured her little league's coach attention when he spotted her throwing a football in perfect spirals to a group of boys. She was seven then. The coach was so impressed he invited her to his team's basketball practice, but feared she'd be intimidated by all the boys. Davis showed up, got in line for the three-man weaves, and performed the drill like she'd been doing it her entire life. Blown away, the coach persuaded her to join the Anderson Monarchs, his little league baseball team. She had never played baseball before, but the Monarchs was a co-ed league and her coach was determined to teach her alongside the other boys and girls. Davis played many positions for the Monarchs, but primarily served as a pitcher. She was also the center midfielder on the soccer team. And by age 13, she was racking up 35 points in basketball games. At such a young age, she excelled at so many sports by being gifted, unflappable, and a good sportsman. When asked the number of points she made in a basketball game, she often couldn't answer because she couldn't remember. A true team player, she was more concerned about the team's performance than her own. It's a quality her teammates valued and respected. At age 13, she became the first black girl to play in the Little League World Series. Her dynamic display of athleticism, she was the first girl to throw a shutout in the series history, made her the year's standout athlete. She was featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated, the first Little League baseball player to receive such an honor, and she also met the Obamas. Amidst all the fame and praise, Davis's Little League coach remained steadfast about grounding his players in the realities of American culture. He began a series of educational trips to help Davis and her teammates understand the country's history. On Davis's 14th birthday, they visited the 16th Street Baptist Church in, in Birmingham, Alabama, and learned about the white supremacist bombing that killed four black girls. Three of those girls were 14. One was 11. The next month, the team took a bus trip to the South and visited the landmarks of the civil rights era. On the day they departed for their first destination, a white supremacist murdered nine black parishioners at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. The history she had learned at 16th Street Baptist Church was suddenly real and in front of her. She since said that these trips altered the way she viewed the world. In 2018, she committed to Hampton University, where she majored in communications and played softball. So, HBCU, American icons who attended. Excellent book. We are not going to read everything in here because I'm going to move to um, some women's history in this uh, coming week or so. Um, but I encourage you to get the book. It is worth it. I am not going to get to Isn't Her Grace Amazing today because I want to leave some time for conversation. Um, because I have to end a little early today. So I'm going to bring you in, Pastor Ben, if you'd like to um, comment on anything that we have covered today. And I'm going to hold, isn't her grace amazing, 
for Wednesday and Thursday. All right. Let's chop it up. Pastor Ben, you're going to have to hold me to time because I've got to be off by 11.45. If you're listening by Anchor, I want to thank you for your time and attention. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host, Shantae Charles. Leave me a recording. I do listen to them. And tell me what you think of today's show. Take care, be well, and be light.